Well, good afternoon. I honor the living God as we recognize him, him alone, to be supremely worthy of glory, the one eternal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are grateful to him and the trinity of his sacred persons for the rich mercy and grace that he shows us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the privilege of being with you at this uh, Bunyan Conference. My first one was attended about five miles west of here at the Cowan Conference Center back in 1990, and I've always found this conference to be a rich time of benefit, blessing, encouragement, edification, and I'm thankful for God's kind mercies that have allowed me to come over a number of years and from time to time to speak, and this year somewhat by default. Uh, Brother Fred Zaspel was to bring the messages on limited atonement, particular redemption, and uh, Brother Fred's uh, schedule is very full, uh, busy also, busily engaged right now in the writing of a book. It's a theological biography of B.B. Warfield that in the will of the Lord, Crossway will be publishing. And uh, he asked me to pass on greetings to you, and I asked him, well, would you mind if I asked the brethren to pray for you in completing this book? He said, not at all. So if you would, remember him as he does that, and uh, that book, I trust, will have a wide circulation. As, uh, God's given Crossway, it seems, a very wide readership, and uh, we trust as well that God would use that book to bring some who don't know the truths of grace to love the grace that Warfield believed and taught, that we believe as well. And uh, so if you would, remember him to that end and ask for uh, God's mercies as he's doing that, engaged in that. Well, I'm sorry for being delayed. I got a last-minute call from home and uh, thought that might be worth looking into. I'm afraid it wasn't, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I, have an old, I, had an old, I have an older brother, and sometimes older brothers and younger brothers just don't gee and haw like they should. That was the nature of the call, and I hope that didn't go on CD, but anyway, uh, the Lord willing, in these first two sessions that we have, I will be speaking with you about the subject, for whom did Christ die? And as we choose that, uh, chose that topic for the uh, messages that we have these first two, uh, we wanted to go a little bit beyond that. Obviously, the question is vital. The question is important. Brother John has already touched on that in some measure by what he has dealt with in regard to imputation. If I could give you another title, though, I'd like to do so, and that is The Salvation of the Elect by the Blood of Jesus. The Salvation of the Elect by the Blood of Jesus. I want to explain that title, the Lord willing, in just a few minutes. But first I want to direct you to some text of Scripture in the New Testament. If you would, first of all, look with me in Galatians chapter 3, please, to which reference has already been made several times today. I think Brother Blake referred to Galatians 3 earlier and also Brother John in the preceding session. And I'd like to ask you, if you would, to notice with me, please, the words of the Apostle beginning there at verse 7 of Galatians chapter 3, and I'd like for us to read through to verse 14. As we think of the topic, for whom did Christ die, the particular title I give you, the salvation of the elect by the blood of Jesus, our focus in these two sessions this afternoon will be on particular redemption. And so we want to look at a few New Testament texts at the outset, not enlarge on them, but just read them that feature that word redeem or redemption. And in doing so, in some measure, set some kind of parameters for us. My focus will be on the doctrine of particular redemption. And I think as we look even at these texts in these New Testament passages, we will see in some measure the particularity of redemption found in them. Galatians 3, then beginning at verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be, be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. 
Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Then if you would turn over, please, to a verse from the benediction of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Be grand to read these verses that make up the whole of the benediction, verses 3 through 14. But given our time, I'd like to just ask you to notice verse 7, please. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. The apostle, by inspiration, as he blesses God, the triune God, for our salvation and his grace in our salvation, says this in verse 7. Speaking of the beloved Christ, in verse 6, he writes in verse 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And let me add verse 8. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Then if you turn over to Titus chapter 2, please. Titus, the second chapter, one of those letters we commonly call with First and Second Timothy, the pastoral epistles, probably one of Paul's later letters. In Titus chapter 2, if you would, begin reading with me there at verse 11, and we'll read through to verse 14. Titus 2, again, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and, impur and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We have in all of those texts that we've read the word redeem, redeemed, or redemption. And our focus will be on particular redemption. But as we've read the word of God, may we just pause a moment to ask our God to grant his blessing, stamp and seal to his word. Father, we bow our heads, we bow our hearts in the name of him in whom we have redemption through his blood. And Father, as we do that, we ask you that you would, by your spirit, breathe upon our hearts, our minds, and upon your word of truth, that we might be beneficiaries today of that that we look at. And Father, we desire as well that by your Spirit, you would animate in us worship and praise to our great, our worthy Redeemer, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And Father, we ask it in his worthy name with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, we have, as we said in those texts that we've read, and God willing, we'll be going back to them in measure, we have in them redemption words. In the case of Galatians 3, from which we read, we have the verb ex agarazzo, to buy out of. In the case of Ephesians 1.7, we have the noun apolutrosis in the Greek, which basically is a payment that secures release. And then in that last one that we read from Titus chapter 2, we have the word latrao, who uh, gave himself for us that he might redeem us. And again, the idea is to secure release by the payment of a ransom. I would say to you inherent in all of those words is the idea of particularity in redemption. Brother John's already touched on it in measure through what has been said concerning imputation. The question before us is the question, for whom did Christ die? I chose as my title, in addition to the topic, for whom did Christ die? I chose as my title, the salvation of the elect by the blood of Jesus. In choosing that title, brothers and sisters, I was very consciously making reference to a book that had a great impact on me. That book is entitled in Latin, as a subtitle, Salus Electorum Sanguini Jesu. The translation in English, The Salvation of the Elect by the Blood of Jesus. You probably know it better by its English title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Latin subtitle, Salus Electorum Sanguini Jesu means the salvation of the elect by the blood of Jesus. And that is what John Owen, with definiteness, with certitude, sets forth in that book. It's found in volume 10 of the Banner of Truth works of Owen. Some of you are familiar with it, with an accompanying introductory essay by J.I. Packer that is uh, published by itself. I owe much to that book because... In my earlier days, I was a four-pointer. 
I am a recovering Arminian, as I heard one brother say. Thank God I've been in remission for some time. But uh, in that state, I did in my recovery, I did uh, experience a time when I was a four-pointer. And I found great help from Mr. Owen's work in looking at that which he, I believe, so rightly and so biblically sets forth concerning the nature of the redemptive work that our Lord Jesus accomplished. I believe, brothers and sisters, most definitely in particular redemption. And I believe as well as we look at that subject this afternoon, there is much scripture to support the reality of a redemption that was successfully and effectually wrought by Jesus Christ according to God's design for His people. I believe the issues that touch on this matter of particular redemption are basically two. The first of those is the divine intent of the atonement. We have no issue about the sufficiency. That's really a sidebar discussion. Don't want to touch on that. With regard to divine intent, though, we believe the Father gave the Son, and in the purpose of God in eternity past, the Father purposed that the Son should come to give Himself as a redemption for His people who were given to Him in electing grace before the foundation of the world. That is the divine intent we understand. But along with that, another accompanying issue with regard to particular redemption is the matter of efficacy. And that is, as John has already touched on in the preceding talk on imputation, the matter of efficacy really relates so vitally to the issue of what Christ did. Did Christ in his redemption secure that which redemption is? Redemption is the release the freeing, the payment of a debt that secures the release of those for whom it's given. That being true, there must be, in the purpose of God, an accompanying efficacy that marks that work. There are many testimonies that I think we find to that in the uh, hymns of the church, in the uh, writings of many. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, one whom God willing I'll quote, but if I may, let me direct your attention to a hymn. You don't have words before you, but I'd ask you if you would to listen carefully to me as I'd share the words of a hymn of Ms. Ann Ross Cousin. Some of you are familiar with her name because uh, in the 1800s as the wife of a Presbyterian minister in Scotland, she took from Samuel Rutherford's letters a number of lines and she wove them into about 26 stanzas of poetry. And we know it by the title, the hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Ms. Cousin also composed another grand hymn that's still used among God's people today. And the title of one of the tunes is Substitution, appropriately named so because of the thrust of these words. I'd ask you to listen to these words that this godly sister wrote from the 1800s. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. The tempest awful voice was heard, O Christ, it broke against thee. Thine open bosom was my ward, it braved the storm for me. Thy form was scarred, thy visage marred, now cloudless peace for me. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy blood beneath that rod is flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. The flaming sword thy blood must slake. Thy heart its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Left but the love for me. For me, Lord Jesus, thou hast died. And I have died in thee. Thou art risen, my bands are all untied. And now thou livest in me. The Father's face of radiant grace shines now in love on me. 
I tell you, brothers and sisters, as Miss Cousin draws from the scriptures those elements of the cup, the sword, the rod, and brings them together in that hymn, we see the reality of what the reformers called that wonderful exchange, Christ in my place, Christ in my stead, bearing the whole of what God's wrath should have given toward me. And now the reality of that is Christ in my stead, having taken that, to the praise of the glory of God's triune, of the triune God's grace, I am freed from those things. And in time, I shall be brought by the Spirit to faith in God's Son through the gospel and being delivered from the wrath to come by being brought to faith, I shall forever to the praise of His glory honor the Lamb in eternity to come with one cry on my lips, and that is worthy, worthy, Worthy is the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this and think together about it, we want to consider then, by way of, of uh, introduction, a brief definition of particular redemption. Let me give you one last stanza of Ms. Ross's hymn that uh, my notes, uh, I can use John as my piggyback here. My notes got shuffled, Brother John. I'm not missing a page, but I missed a stanza. The Holy One did hide His face, so Christ was hid from thee. Dumb darkness wrapped thy soul a space, the darkness due to me. But now that face of radiant grace shines forth in light on me. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, I choose today as we talk about this doctrine, I choose the title, the name that's commonly used among many brethren who believe in sovereign grace, the title, the, the name, the handle, particular redemption. And I do so because I find that the title Limited Atonement has some limitations, shall we say. Pun intended. Thank, thanks to those of you who chuckled lightly and um, um, amused me. Uh, limited Atonement, as I believe Brother Spurgeon pointed out so well, the believer in free will still believes in a limited atonement if he believes in hell. Anyone who believes in hell believes in limited atonement. And the words of Brother Spurgeon, quoted by Mr. Packer in that introductory essay to the death of death and the death of Christ, bring that out. Brother Spurgeon made this statement. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now our reply to this is that on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say no, Christ has died that any man be saved if, and then follows certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you. You say that Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. And I say amen to Brother Spurgeon. He's distilled well the thought, again, of efficacy that marks the atoning work of our Savior. His work was effective. It was effectual. And what it was designed to do, praise God, it shall accomplish. It is the lever by which God in sovereign grace lifts the sinner out of the miry clay into which he's fallen. That is the cross work that does that. Now I realize there are some who from an Amaraldian point have said even, not Arminian, but Amaraldian, they've said, well... Christ, Christ's work is the dynamite. But my faith is the match. 
And I would say to that, oh, no, my faith flows out of his work. It's his, it's his work that gives faith, not faith that gives his work effectiveness. And that, brothers and sisters, I trust we can see in some measures we go on. Well, I've quoted Mr. Spurgeon. I'd like to ask your indulgence in quoting him a little further, please. Mr. Spurgeon has a morning and evening devotional. Some of you use that, I'm sure, to great profit. I have and others as well. But on, on the morning of September 25th, dealing with the statement from Romans 3.26, which we've heard already from Brother John, just and the justifier of him which believeth, Mr. Spurgeon has these comments, and at the heart of them lie the biblical truth of particular redemption. Mr. Spurgeon writes, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Conscience accuses no longer. Judgment now decides for the sinner instead of against him. Memory looks back upon past sins with deep sorrow for the sin, but yet with no dread of any penalty to come. For Christ has paid the debt of his people to the last jot and tittle and received the defined receipt. And unless God can be so just as to demand double payment for one debt, no soul for whom Jesus died as a substitute can ever be cast into hell. It seems to be one of the very principles of our enlightened nature to believe that God is just. We feel that it must be so, and this gives us our terror at first. But is it not marvelous that this very same belief that God is just becomes afterwards the pillar of our confidence and peace? If God be just, I, a sinner, alone and without a substitute, must be punished. But Jesus stands in my stead and is punished for me. And now if God be just, I, a sinner standing in Christ, can never be punished. God must change his nature before one soul for whom Jesus was a substitute can by any possibility suffer the lash of the law. Therefore, Jesus, having taken the place of the believer, having rendered a full equivalent to divine wrath for all that his people ought to have suffered as the result of sin, the believer can shout with glorious triumph, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Not God, for he is justified. Not Christ, for he has died. Because, uh, because I am a sinner, uh, because I am not a sinner, uh, not because I'm not a sinner, excuse me, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or, he, or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is and what he has done and what he is now doing for me. On the lion of justice, the fair maid of hope rides like a queen. That, brothers and sisters, is what we believe, again, about the efficacious work of Christ. As we speak of that, I want to ask you to please turn your attention now with me to the scriptures. We're thankful for hymns. We're thankful for the writings of a good, solid gospel Calvinist like Charles Spurgeon. And may I say to you, brothers and sisters, if we are going to have a Calvinism, may it be the gospel Calvinism of a Spurgeon. May it be that kind of Calvinism that preaches the gospel to sinners and makes known the greatness and glory of our worthy Savior, as we think about this matter of redemption, again, we want to ask, what is redemption? When we speak of particular redemption, when we speak of general redemption, at the heart of the word redemption, we must give some definition. And again, redemption is buying back or freeing from captivity or bondage by the pain of a price. In those words of Ephesians 1-7, which we read, we, we saw, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the remission or forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I'd ask you in the words of verse 7 to notice the, the, the uh, parallel there. Speaking of the beloved in verse 6, Paul writes, In whom we have redemption through his blood. And then there's an appositive there. And I don't want to sound like your 7th or 8th grade English grammar teacher. But thank God for the apposition there. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the remission or forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. What is equated there? What is put parallel? Redemption? But what is that called in verse 7? The remission of sins. The forgiveness of sins. In other words, as Paul speaks in that grand benediction of Ephesians 1, he is not speaking hypothetically. 
He is not speaking of some hypothetical redemption which Christ has accomplished. He speaks of the reality of that redemption through his blood as being nothing less than the forgiveness or the remission of our sins by the forgiveness or by by the riches of his grace. Brothers and sisters, I say to you, there we see, if you will, what redemption must bring in its train. True redemption brings the forgiveness of sins for all those for whom that redemption was accomplished. And when we look at the Old Testament with regard to redemption, we find a grand background of redemption, don't we? If we look to the book of Exodus, we see in type the redemption of a people. A people for whom God gives definite instruction. Take a lamb, slay that lamb, and then place that lamb's blood on the lintels and doorposts. Gather everyone into the home, the lambs for the house, But God says as well in Exodus 12, the lamb is for the whole house of Israel. By the way, that sounds very particular to me. I heard a brother of an Arminian stripe preaching one time about those very words of Exodus 12. I was listening to him by way of radio. He was preaching and he was gathering quite a lather, you know. Some of us southerners like to do that. A few of us northerners do too, Brother Gary. Brotherness. Uh, he was gathering quite a letter, uh, lather. He said, oh, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 12, uh, take that lamb for the whole house of Israel. Any hyper-Calvinist here, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> of course, the problem is, is Paul Zaspel's dad likes to say a lot of fundamentalists don't know hyper-Calvinism from hypertension. Uh, that's, I wish I could claim credit for that, but I have to give it to Dr. Zaspel. Uh, but but as, as I heard him say that, you know, I started talking back to the radio. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I, I hope it's a sign of intelligence, you know. But I started talking back to the radio. He, 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 the text said, take it for the whole house of Israel. And he said, any hyper put that in your pipe and smoke it. And I asked Brother Mays, I said, Brother Mays, where's the house of Egypt in there? Because the lamb was commanded to be taken for what? The whole house of Israel. That, that is particular. No mention of Egypt there. The, the man who defeated himself by the quoting of the verse that he wanted to use as a gun against me. He actually turned it on himself. And I don't know what he did with it, but there was some damage, I know. Because you see, that's the nature of Scripture. The typology of redemption is seen there in Exodus. And what does God do for Israel? By blood and a high hand, he brings them out of bondage and he brings them into a land of promise. That's the picture. That's the type. I remember on one occasion ministering in a church and uh, they did not have much exposure to the doctrines of grace. I taught those things and, and, and there were those who turned uh, against that teaching within that congregation. But one dear sister came up to me and said, brother, God's taught me those truths. Another brother came up to me and he said, Brother, the very things you're teaching, I was stu- I've been studying the book of Exodus. He said, God taught me what you've been teaching this week from the book of Exodus. There in type, we see what redemption is in the Old Testament. The bringing out of a people. How? By a price being given. But do we see that personally in the Old Testament? Yes, we do. Would you turn with me to the book of Job, please? Job chapter 19. Now, We'll overlook the fact that someone in this conference has said that a brother was saved reading the book of Job, and I don't see how. We'll overlook that. <laughs> I love John Reesinger, y'all. So. And I appreciated Brother Teddy's comments to him yesterday about that. Thank you. John, Job chapter 19, please. Look with me at Job's words. You remember Job, don't you? Job is involved, if you will, in a crucial lawsuit. It appears that God himself is turned against Job, and that's basically the thrust of chapter 19 if we read the whole chapter. He tells his friends, Have pity upon me, O my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. And it appears that everything has fallen out from beneath Job's feet. Sometimes we feel like we've been there, but I don't think we've been there to the degree and magnitude that Job was, brothers and sisters. But in chapter 19, beginning at verse 23, Job makes a statement that he says, I want this to be remembered. Notice, please, Job 19, verse 23. 
Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. More than that, notice verse 24. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Job, what is so vital here that you want to have recorded? And not just in a book, but you want it put, as it were, in stone on an epitaph. What is it? Verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Notice these words of Job. In the midst of his suffering, in the midst of the, this crucial lawsuit, if you will, that it seems God is engaged against him. And Job's three friends, you remember, really joined with Job in saying that. Job, you've been hypocrite in it all this time. We thought you were righteous, but now our theology tells us you're going through these trials. You, you're not really a righteous man. God would have brought this on you. They had their God-in-a-box theology. And they judged Job by that standard. And as a result of that, they said, we know you can't really be what you said you are. But Job, in the midst of it, says, write this down, friends. Write this down. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that leads us to ask in this context, what is a Redeemer? Many of you are familiar with the fact that the word Redeemer that is given here in our King James and so many other translations is the Hebrew word goel. A word that comes from the, the verb ga'al, to redeem. That word, as it's used here by Job, speaks of the reality of, of what Job knew that he possessed in his God. He said, speaks of, in the midst of the situation, he speaks of a redeemer that he possesses. That word redeemer is a grand word. The word goel, again, it's used as you're familiar, I know many of you, in the Old Testament of the kinsman redeemer. The one near of kin. The idea, the concept behind the Redeemer is, is one who is a helper. And in some measure it reflects the word azar in Hebrew, to help. But he's more than that. He's also a, a rescuer. And that takes us beyond a helper because some can help, but they don't have to rescue. But this word rescuer as well embodies what the goel is. And in that way it reflects the Hebrew verb natsal. But he's also a, a liberator or a deliverer beyond being a rescuer. He's a deliverer, a liberator. And in that sense, it reflects the Hebrew word Yasha, from which the name of our Savior, Yahashua, Jesus, is taken. But, but he's more than even that because the deliverance that he accomplishes, the rescue that he brings, the help that he gives, that involves the payment of a ransom. And in that sense, this reflects the Hebrew word Pada. But in the case of the Goel, he's all of these things and he's more. For at the heart of the Goel, it speaks of one who rests his next of kin. And being next of kin, he steps in. If you will, the, 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 the totality of the concept is basically this. The next of kin who steps in and pays the cost of court so that the indicted relatives can go free. Job speaks of himself as possessing a goel here. Job didn't protest that he was sinless. Job protested that he was innocent with regard to these trials. These, and the scriptures say that in Job 1 and 2. We know the background. We're given, in the prologue, we're given that background. Job doesn't claim sinlessness. Job knew he was a sinner. But Job knew that in the midst of his sin, he had one who... Though the charges that were against him, the indictment against him could be made to stick, Job had one who, as his goel, would stand up on his behalf and pay the cost of court. Did Job see the fullness of this? I don't know. But I know this. Job said he knew he had a redeemer. And although I live this side of the cross, Job lived that side of the cross, one thing I know, brothers and sisters, is like Job, I Need a redeemer. I need someone who is able to, as one near of kin to me. And that's why our Lord Jesus, by the womb of a virgin, became man. I need someone who's near of kin to me. Who doesn't have any charges against him. Someone who hasn't been indicted before the bar of heaven. 
I need someone who can stand in my room and pay my court cost. For I do not have the wherewithal to pay that price. Jesus Christ, I tell you, he is that kinsman. He is that redeemer. I think Keith Green said it so well in the words of a song that he called, some of you'll forgive me, altar call. Keith Green said it this way in that song. Most people don't find out till it's too late that someone has to pay the price. You can pay it yourself, ha, or let someone else. But who'd be that nice to pay a debt that isn't his? Well, I know someone like that, and he's your best friend. He really is. He really loves you. You see, you've got two options. The option is you pay the price yourself for the court case that's brought against you. But if you do that, that means unsparing justice will demand the payment of the penalty for all eternity in a place called hell, the lake of fire, Gehenna. There'll be exacting justice. And I'll never pay what I owe to the justice of God. Or someone can pay the price for you. And that's what the Goel does on behalf of his people. Job knew he had a Goel. Job knew he had a redeemer, brothers and sisters. And knowing that he possessed one, he could say some things to his friends. He could say, he shall stand at the latter day on the earth. And though after my, my body worms destroy, after my flesh worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. In effect, Job says, because of the union that exists between my redeemer and me, he'll stand. And guess what? I'll stand in him. And that's the assurance that his people have. Why? Because of the divine intent and the efficacy of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It's a reality, brothers and sisters. We see this, I believe, as well in those words that we find of Paul in Galatians chapter 3. And I'd like to ask you please to look with me at those words and considering together some more Old Testament background. Going back to Galatians 3, which we read, Please notice, again, verses 7 and following. As the apostle speaks here, he grounds the gospel, as Brother Blake did for us this morning. He grounds the gospel in the storyline, the meta-narrative of Scripture. Takes us back to the seed plot book of the Bible, the book of beginnings. And in those words there of Galatians 3 and verse 7, we read again. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel, the good news unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Brother Blake called those words to our attention this morning from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Bless you, brother. Thank you. You know what this is for, don't you? For dry preachers. Thank you, Brother David. Going back to verse 12. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. But what is the result of him becoming a curse for us? Verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There we have that reality, brothers and sisters. The reality of Christ bearing the curse and correspondingly, as a result of him becoming a curse, the blessing of Abraham coming on us. That blessing was declared in, again, the seed plot book of the Bible, the book of beginnings. God said, in thee 
And he qualified that later in the promises that follow in Genesis to Abraham. In thy seed shall all the kindreds, all the people groups, mishpoka in Hebrew, and in them all shall all the, in the him rather, shall all the nations be blessed. But how's that blessing going to come? And as we look at the narrative of Genesis, I believe we see it and already attention's been called to it, but I would remind you again of it. And it's good to be able to follow these brethren. I just get the piggyback and hopefully somebody will come up and say, good message, Brother Dave. And all I had to do was quote Brother Blake, quote Brother John. And, you know. But he called our attention to chapter 15. And what goes on there? God is going to, if you will, cut the covenant in that formal way that a covenant was ratified in those days. And as God takes, tells Abraham to take a, a heifer of three years old and ram and take the birds, and as he tells them to divide the larger animals, they were cut in half, signifying as the parties to the covenant would walk through those animal halves. They were signifying a maledictory curse that if they failed to keep their end of the bargain, they, would let, they wanted to have happened to them what had happened to those animals. May I be similarly cursed, in other words. And as that happens, remember it's getting toward dusk. Birds begin to fall upon the animals and Abram scares them away. But then all of a sudden, Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And in a vision, he sees a smoking furnace and a flaming lamp pass through those animal parts. And as our brothers already pointed out, Abram is on the sidelines asleep. He's not a somnambulist either. That means sleepwalker. What is God saying? God is saying, though it means taking the curse on me, I will bring the blessing that I promised to Abraham and all the nations. Did it mean God taking the curse? Yes, it did. For God's own son became Abraham's seed. And on the cross, he paid the price. And he did what? He redeemed us. How do you redeem the indicted relative stands before the bar of justice. And what does the near of kin do? The near of kin comes in on behalf of the indicted relative and pays the cost court, the, the court cost, excuse me. That's what our Savior does, brothers and sisters. He comes in on our behalf. He redeems us by paying our price, paying our penalty. And in doing that, what happened? That which Paul in his pre-conversion days apparently couldn't figure out. For he knew the book of Deuteronomy said, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And he heard these blasphemers saying that Jesus was Messiah. But he had died the cursed death of the cross. And he wondered as he persecuted them, how can they say that about God's favored one? How can they say that Messiah would die that cursed death? But when on the road to Damascus, the Savior appeared to him and he saw the Shekinah glory presence of God. He knew it was the glory that prophets had seen. And yet the voice from the cloud, the Shekinah glory was saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that led him to ask, who are you, Lord? I thought I knew you. I thought I'd been doing all of this for you. Doing you a service by persecuting these followers of the way. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. Lord, what would you have me do? And I believe at that point it fell into place for Paul. And he realized then the reality of what that death of the tree meant for Jesus. For what was he doing? The blessed one was becoming the cursed one. So that the cursed ones might become the blessed ones. And Christ, in that wonderful exchange that he accomplished at the tree, Jesus Christ took our place. And the result of that is stated so clearly in verse 14, the henna clause of the text, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And if I may add, more than that, praise God. Oh, that's the first installment I've read in Scripture. That's the Arabone, the down payment. But brothers and sisters, what we owed, Christ has paid. And the result of that is having become a curse for us, the blessing will come on those 
for whom he gave himself and for whom is a curse he suffered. And this, brothers and sisters, we believe to be the clear testimony of Scripture. But as we think about those words that Paul quotes from Genesis 12, 3, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I would say to you that we see, and I want to try to juxtapose two things in regard to this issue of particular redemption, general or universal redemption. I want to juxtapose two things. In those words of Genesis 12, we see what I would call a biblical universality. A biblical universality. And I would hold that in contrast to an unbiblical universalism. For you see, in the mention of many nations, in fact all nations, that is all the people groups of the earth, in the mention of that, we have, brothers and sisters, a definite statement of biblical universality. The gospel excludes no one because of nationality. All of the, all of the hoops that we make people jump through to be part of us. Class, race, sex, education, all of those things fall to nothing before the gospel of Christ. And that which God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ is for all without distinction, is to race, class, kind, not for all without exception, as far as the whole of humanity. Now that's been often said by brethren who would be of a sovereign grace view of the redemption work, redemptive work of Christ. But I'll tell you what, it's still a good will to roll the work of Christ on. And because of that, I still find it helpful. Those for whom Christ died are scattered among all the people groups of the earth. That's why we thank God for the work that Rod's doing and these brethren that he introduced us to last night. We thank God that the gospel's going out to, to places where we didn't know there were people. Because Christ has a people among them. And we believe that the gospel is the means by which God will call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Believing that, though, as we do that, we don't, if you will, stretch the divine intent of the work of Christ beyond those bounds that God himself has set. We can see the particularity of the work of Christ within that biblical universality without without violating the work of our Savior and robbing it of its efficacy or its effectiveness. Joe Krieger, question to you, Dave, is in, in discussing the um, decorative will of God, um, and then as we talk about his moral will, right. understanding, unless you can correct me here, first of all, is the word moral ever used in the scripture no it's not okay can we can we talk about it in a more biblical way if what we see as the will of God is an expression of his will we understand that his law and so on and so forth his commands are the expression of his character ultimately his righteousness right be holy even as I am holy be yes. perfect etc are we possibly better in using that expression that when we're talking of these things that it's an expression of God's moral will mm -hmm. that really is more an expression of his righteousness his right. holiness and just we understand how others can associate to that word sure. but amongst ourselves is there a more biblical way of expressing that biblical truth yes thank you brother uh, that's why some do like the term preceptive will because precept obviously is one of those words that speaks of god's command i don't object to the term moral in one sense because we do I think in some measure have an agreement about what morality entails, but, uh, and then again, not, uh, in society at least. But uh, <clears throat> the, wh whatever one feels comfortable with, I, I had conversation with a, uh, a brother, I'd like to believe he's a brother genuinely, uh, some bad things have happened lately in his life, but I believe he was actually on the drift toward what I would call hyper-Calvinism. And uh, we were talking one time about responsibility and human accountability. And he said, well, brother, those words aren't in the scripture. So what came to me is, ex is Ecclesiastes 12, uh, duty. 
because this man was very much a King James man, you know. So if you remember the words of uh, Ecclesiastes 12, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Now actually in the Hebrew text, the word duty is not found. It's actually the whole of man, really, coal in the Hebrew. So we don't have the word, but I, I wanted to use that word with him because, again, he respected the King James Version uh, because, really, responsibility and accountability aren't found in Scripture either. But at some point, I think, you know, we've got to develop something that will, will satisfy. Uh, I'm not opposed to the other terms, but preceptive will, righteous will, uh, God's will of command, and uh, the others, like Brother Barney that I mentioned, speaks of the will of desire as opposed to the will of uh, decree. And that, that, I think, is also a good way we could speak of it because there are some verses that use the word desire. Thank you, Joe. Carrie Bates. Uh, can we back up to this afternoon? Oh, yes, I think this time is supposed to c cover all three sessions, okay. yes. I I'd like to go back to when you were talking about particular redemption. Right. And you were using some of the uh, rituals and events that happened in Israel's history right. as uh, typology for particularity. Yes. A and I was thinking about what Blake had talked about when he was saying that we could see Israel as a corporate atom. If we see Israel as a corporate atom, does that cut the ground out of it being a typology that is particular? Uh, I don't think so. And the reason I would say that is because the, 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 the matter of correspondence in Scripture, which I believe is that on which typology is genuinely based, uh, whether it's the issue of Sabbath, whether it's priesthood, whatever we draw out of Scripture that we see this pattern that marks typology, uh, no type is going to be uh, perfect. Uh, in my own view, I was reading in one of the tracts of Bible reading I'm doing for the year, I finished Song of Solomon uh, yesterday. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, chapter 8 concludes with, Song, with Solomon and it mentions wives and concubines. I believe there's a, there's a typology in Song of Solomon, but in some measure that typology, some would say, is vitiated by the fact that Solomon has these wives and concubines. I don't see that any more than David being a type of Christ. We would say, well, you've got to disqualify that because David committed adultery. David, you know, murdered Uriah or had him murdered. There are limitations with the type. You know, Samson can be a type in the sense that he judged Israel. Was he a type of Christ altogether, though, you know? No, no. So that, that to me would be my answer as far as the type, you know, having to discount the type or discard the type because of the fact that Israel could be viewed as a corporate atom. So there would be more facets to Israel's more identification facets. than just a corporate atom. Yes. And, I, you know, Paul, I think, in some measure makes that application in 1 Corinthians 10, not wholly, but when he talks about all Israel, all Israel, but with many. And then he warns, you know, and he says these things were examples to us. So. Thanks. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Okay, good enough. The extra special version too. Okay, Jack, I really like this New Testament. Thank you, brother. <laughs> you will get it back, brother. Um, uh, brother David. David Bennett, um, you said, and I can't quote you this afternoon, but the gist of it was you said in, in some, we, you were speaking of being in Christ, and uh, you said, and there was some sense in which in eternity past we were in Christ. Right. I've had some discussions with several Calvinists who are quasi-eternal justification mm -hmm. believers. Uh, and I don't see that at all. Is there any sense in which you can, or is there any sense in which you see in the scriptures any aspect of eternal justification? I don't. Uh, I guess in a roundabout way, since we consider that our union with Christ began pretemporally, before time, that uh, one could maybe 
making any runs for that, but I really hesitate to do so. Uh, I, I like the statement that election is not salvation, election is unto salvation. And that being true, I, I'm not comfortable with uh, you know, the work of Mr. Bryan or others that would teach eternal justification. I, uh, I'm really not comfortable with a lot of statements that sometimes are made about justification by some Calvinists because I think that I don't want to get away from where the scripture places justification, and that is by faith. You know? And I think that declarative aspect is something the scripture ties to the faith of the believer. So I, I really would not embrace that. Uh, I guess that's it could enlarge, but that's you know all I would say. about eternal union, although I, it's in some hymns, and I appreciate the idea. But yeah, that, that verse is, uh, there came a time when, in the case of, I think, of Andronicus and Junior there, they were joined to Christ vitally before Paul. And he speaks, and that's how Paul speaks in terms of conversion, too. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if any man be Christ. in Christ, he, you know, that, that's the Pauline vocabulary for becoming a Christian. And in uh, Romans tw uh, 16, 7, as you say, it's a you know, tremendous verse that talks about how prior to, you know, Paul's conversion, these folk were converted, but they were in Christ before me. Thank you, Kirk. Second Corinthians 12, years ago, Paul I, says, I knew a man in Christ. 12, years ago. Yeah, amen. Brother Gary. Gary Spatol. The question that I have is relative to the teaching that you did today regarding particular atonement yeah. and how it reflects also on the two wills of God because there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of uh, internet blogs and teachings that God had multiple intentions in the atonement. Right. And could you relate what you're teaching regarding particular redemption and the two wills of God to the current debate on multiple intentions? Okay, if Gary. you see any relation there, I think I think you know where I'm going with that question. I hope I, I'm, you do. I'm not sure the fullness of it, but I, I can appreciate the question because mm -hmm. what I understand about the two wills of God, it's something that I'm trying to tie to what I see Scripture clearly teaching. And when I come to what Christ did, His work is revealed in Scripture. I don't see that multiplicity of intentions, mm -hmm. and that's why I say we we got to stop there. You know. And again, even like Mr. Hodge, when he wants to ground uh, like the preaching of the gospel and God's general mercy to the work of Christ, obviously I can't argue with Mr. Hodge, he's deceased, you know. But, <laughs> but my point is I don't, I don't see him having a bit of scripture on which to ground that. And that's why I think this idea of multiple intentions, I don't know if I'd say it's dangerous, but I think it, again, is going beyond scripture, whether it's Mr. Pink saying God doesn't forgive sin, you know. Uh, and that's, that's where I, God helping me, I want to bind myself to Scripture. I know I'm not consistent in some areas, but thank you, Gary. Good question, though, because I would want to divorce the two there because they never were married. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you, bro. That's the one I didn't mention that I said I wanted to. Basically, on 2 Peter 2.1, I find Mr. Gill to be very helpful. Uh, some of you will remember that passage even about these false teachers even denying the Lord that bought them. Uh, the Greek word is agorazo. Uh, Mr. Gill basically, going back to Deuteronomy 32, makes some associations in which that word bought there is uh, basically understood as acquired in the sense of creation. By creation, right? The Greek word that's translated Lord in 2 Peter 2 1 is despotes, not kurios. I think kurios does have more of a redemptive thrust. Despotes, our word despot comes from it, you know, a tyrannical ruler. We don't have, that's not the idea in the Greek New Testament, but I think despotes conveys more the idea of sovereign ruler. And so for that reason, I believe that uh, it is, in fact, talking about the Lord, the sovereign one, possessing these as his creation. Gary Long, that uh, 
Brother Joe was mentioning, has done some great work on these passages. Are those books still in print, do you know, Joe? Okay, great. Definite Atonement, right, okay. And, and, and the other work, uh, I know Kirk's going to be dealing with this, but if you want some good supplement to what Brother Kirk will be saying on Matthew 5, Gary, I, I heard him at Dallas back in 80, and it was great. But Gary has done some great work on uh, the use of Agarazzo and, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, brother. Thank you. He, Gary's done some great work on Agarazzo and ex-Agarazzo in, uh, in regard to that in the New Testament and how it's used as a compound and how it's used with a price or a purchase price. And I would commend that study to you. If you don't have it, buy it. I think you'll find it valuable not only on that text but on some of the other more difficult texts. Is that enough, brotherness? No. You come on and give us some more then. Uh, John, I'm sorry. You go ahead, John. You're the elder among us. <laughs> there can, cannot possibly be an argument as to, as to whether or not two wills of God in some sense. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 makes it very obvious that there are the secret things. And the real. But it specifically tells us they belong to God. Yes. And the revealed things, they belong to us that we may do all the things that God wants us to do. So the decrees of God or the secret things of God have nothing to do with my rule of life, right. except they give us confidence that they're there behind the clouds, but we can't see, yeah. and they have nothing to do with us. The difficulty is when the decrees of God appear to conflict with the revealed will of God, right. and it appears like God is frustrated or God is overcome or something like this. When the decrees of God and the revealed will of God appear to conflict, we must always go with the revealed will of God Amen. and never base our conduct on the decrees. Hyper-Calvinism builds a, a system and uses decrees to have conduct. Yes. And the Arminian denies that the decrees are there mm -hmm. to give the hope and the comfort that they should give us. Yes. The other thing is we have a tendency, I think, to systematize things in which, in a way that the Bible doesn't. Amen. And, and it's very difficult for us to see two things at one time. And when you get into the passages like in Hebrews and you get into perseverance, and, and when you teach perseverance and you teach that you have to persevere to the end or you won't be saved. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one of the things in Hebrews 6 and places like this, and when we discuss this with people, we use John chapter 8 where Jesus says, if I said I did not know him, I would be a liar. Mm -hmm. If Jesus would have said that, would he have been a liar? Absolutely he would have. Yeah. You say, well, he couldn't have. That's not the point. Right. The point is he had to tell the truth and not lie in order to verify who he was. True that he was going to do that. True that this was because of who he was. But that doesn't do away with the necessity of doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we have to do that when we come to the revealed will of God sometimes. We just blink. And when we come to things we don't understand, we blink. And we say, God is God. And he hasn't given us all the answers. Amen. Hopefully that helps. That does, brother. That's Thank an old you. man. Yeah. That's a good old man, though. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I, uh, that, that first comment you made, whatever it was, <laughs> I wanted to say something about it, but I forget what it was. That's an old man speaking, you see. <laughs> Brotherness. Gary Judge, I want to get back to Second Peter 2, 1. Yes, sir. And uh, tell me if this interpretation would be satisfactory to the underlying Greek here, where it says they're denying the Lord that bought them. Mm -hmm. We're assuming that the them are the teachers. Is it possible to understand the them to be the students? In other words, the teachers are denying the Lord that bought the ones that they're misleading. Has right. anybody ever heard of that interpretation? I, I, have, I have thought about it, but I've not been satisfied about it from a grammatical standpoint. Well, that, that I think is the key, yeah. in contextually. But I'm, mm -hmm. I'm proposing that as a, a possible right interpretation which I think satisfies our systematic understanding of the atonement as well. Yes, and uh, 
I, I remember the thing some years ago there's a brother in Fayetteville whom we know uh let's see where's David Al Bennett Al Bean you, uh, and we were talking about that possible and, and Al's face lit up he liked it but I am not sure that the grammar will satisfy it let me just read the verse in its entirety for us but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. The problem is, as I look at the verse, to find a referent or antecedent for them in the verse, there's not one. I mean, people, you know, if we take people plural there, then possibly, but it still seems to be a tough fit. And so that's why I have, grammatically, I've not been satisfied with okay. that. Okay. The other question I want to ask, uh, those who hold to the doctrine of annihilationism, for instance, would take Christ's finite sufferings on the cross uh -huh. as, a, as an accurate uh, way of evaluating how justice is accomplished for the atoning of sin. Therefore, they would say, if Christ died finitely mm -hmm. for sin, ought not the sinner die finitely as well for his sin? Can he exhaust the punishment due to his sin, which would terminate his existence in the form of an annihilationism? Mm -hmm. I would go back again to what we basically submitted for an Anselm, that to pay for sin either requires that the finite suffer infinitely, I like that. or that the infinite suffer finitely. And I think that's because of who Christ is as God. He suffered as a man, but obviously the infinite value of his person being the God-man is what gives th that, those finite sufferings their infinite character. And that would be my response. So, in other words, the character of sin is worse than what annihilationists I believe realize. Right. Yes. Okay. If God gave the darling of his bosom over to my punishment so that I might be saved, I have no real idea of how bad sin is. I'm convinced of that. Joe, Joe Kelly. Uh, Brother David, just for the, for the record, um, would you comment on uh, 2 Peter 3.9? As you know, 2 Peter 3.9 is often used by the uh, Amoraldians, and you've clearly distanced, distanced yourself from the Amoraldians yes. uh, today. And, uh, but they use that in terms of the, the will of God um, if, if it is desired that all would be saved, then to them they link it to the atonement that, <clears throat> that, that the way that God expresses that he would provide salvation for all in the death of Christ. However, he would not apply it. He applies it only unto the elect. Mm -hmm. So would you, and that's how they use this particular verse here, so would you right. comment on that? First? Surely, Thank Brother you. Joe. I think in the specific context, for one thing, we have no mention of the work of Christ. You know, in fact, there's very little mention of the work of Christ specifically in First Peter, except for those opening verses, I think we can say. Uh, now, that's not to say Peter doesn't speak of Christ, but I mean, as far as the work of the cross within that context, I, I would understand these words in the way that many Calvinists would traditionally understand them. I do believe the us word makes a difference there. Uh, there are some who would point out variant readings and say in some cases it's towards you, but in any event, those whom he's addressing, he's he says clearly are the elect, both in, chap in chapter 1 of the first letter and also in the second letter. Uh, and, and for that reason, I do believe he's speaking to God's people as his elect. And, and I think another thing that, that is, brings that out is in the context Peter does say the long-suffering, he tells God's people, account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. If this is a general will of God toward the non-elect as well as the elect, then I don't think Peter could say that because if they're not elect, that's not going to happen. Salvation's not going to occur. So I believe this has that special reference to the elect here. And Lloyd-Jones is helpful on that too, Second Peter sermons. <clears throat> 